It did not take him long to find a small town to rest for the night, but rather than lay himself down to sleep, he remained in the common area, drinking and carousing loudly with the company there long into the night, until the earliest strands of dawn crept over the horizon. But just as the enchanted sleep of the hag fell upon him, and the hag herself appeared to exact her price, there was a great shock and surprise among the people there, for the prince had just been singing lustily, and now appeared beside him a horrible old woman, and many cried out, and the prince woke, and for the second time in some few days the pact had been broken. Dismissively, the hag waved one hand at the crowd, who promptly fell asleep in their chairs or slumped to the ground. The prince realized she seemed stronger now, and younger, though it was barely evident. These tricks are growing tiresome, she grumbled. What do you want now? I want to know the name of the country where the princess who lives in the wandering castle once hailed from, and how I may get there. No, said the hag, I will not give you that wisdom. Then our pact will remain forever broken. You woke me again. I did not. The revelers woke you. I had nothing to do with it. Nonetheless, we agreed I should never see you or be awake when you are here. The pact is broken. You are the one to break it! The hag hissed in rage. You have tricked me twice now, and I will grant you your cunning. But know this. If you trick me a third time, I will ensnare you in an eternal sleep that no power on heaven or earth shall be able to wake. And I shall visit you whenever I please, day or night. And you will not have a word to say on the matter, for it all falls within the terms of our arrangement. So be it, said the prince, and trembled. Now tell me the country of the princess, and how I may get there. So be it indeed, said the hag, and she told him what he would know. Again the pact was sealed. But what she did not tell him was that the king and queen of that kingdom, those who had set the princess in her high tower in the walking castle, had done so long ago, centuries ago, and had long been lost to the ages, and that it was only the enchantment upon the castle that protected the princess from her own aging in that time. But even despite the long years that had passed, as soon as the prince came to that kingdom, when he asked about the king and queen and the walking castle, everyone knew of what he spoke. For the legend of the castle had endured in that kingdom for many years, and every man, woman, and child who lived in that far and hidden country, even if they suffered or starved, put a portion of their fruits into the great vault of the palace, in the hopes that one day the princess would be found and the royal line restored. Many seers and prophets had spoken of that day, and the people abode patiently, for secreted in every heart was the hope that one day the princess would return and bring great wealth and prosperity to everyone in the kingdom. Yet when the prince arrived, nobody heeded him when he spoke of how he'd seen and even entered the walking castle, for many pretenders had arisen over the centuries, and the people were impatient of those who spoke without evidence. Even in its hope, it was a poor city, for the farmers shared their food willingly with the many craftsmen and tradesmen who lived there, even though all their wares were stored away for the coming of the princess. Only the palace steward knew what secrets might be kept in the palace vault, and only once a year was it open to admit the new treasures the city locked away. Only one other man was permitted to see what lay inside, the Grand Master Watchmaker, for his was the most respected trade of that city for many generations past, since the first Grand Master Watchmaker had helped the mischievous wizard craft the walking castle. But still the prince was undaunted, 
And as soon as he learned these things, he went to apprentice himself to the watchmakers, only to find that even apprentices were in much supply and little demand, so honorable was that trade. So again he took up the armorer's hammer, no longer to work nails and hooks and horseshoes, but concentrating his efforts instead on the delicate craft of working gold and silver and precious stones. He made ruby-hilted rapiers, diamond-studded coats of mail, and helms wrought with the rising sun, the town's sigil, until his touch was delicate enough to earn the praise of the jewelers. As soon as he could, he gave up the hammer and apprenticed himself in their guild, learning the finer art of setting fragile pearls of the eastern sea into filigreed strands of gold and silver, shaping fine stones into shivering orbs and many-faceted prisms, and crafting chains like thread out of fine links. He beat tiny cogs and flywheels and springs so small they might be lost in the creases of one's palm, and he learned to work metals as thin as cobweb into the delicate hands of watches. Soon his work was coveted by the watchmakers, and in some five short years spent in that kingdom, he finally became an apprentice of the watchmakers' guild. But here his determination and perseverance finally failed him in the face of his impatience. For while armorers were tough and concerned with little more than strength and skill, and jewelers valued ingenious craft above all else, the watchmakers had grown political in their esteem and their cunning plots of power and betrayal were as intricate and subtle and complicated as the innards of their watches. And the prince, brash as he had been in his youth, had not taken the time to learn the art of politicking, for he had disregarded his lessons in his youth and fled his home before they had come to fruition. Many was the night he spent wishing he had not been so hasty, feeling leaden-tongued before the wit and guile of his superiors, envying his younger self for the opportunities he had squandered. And yet, it is difficult to say whether such learning should really have benefited the prince, for only by hastily chasing his desires had he come so far, and who is to say what shape the story would take, or indeed what story might be left at all, had he disregarded his calling and remained a student in his own kingdom. But even as he realized he would never attain the rank of Grand Master and visit the inside of the Great Vault despite his skill, he discovered that his skill might yet serve him in good stead. And so he spent another five years closeted in his workshop, crafting a wonder the likes of which had not been seen before or since, even in the days in which the walking castle had been constructed. For he built, with all the arts he knew, a great clockwork butterfly, with wings each as long as a man is tall, but with workings so delicate they seemed to float on the breeze even when they did not flutter. And, indeed, when the key he made was turned in the butterfly's back, it did flutter, fast enough to lift the wonderful device off the ground and into the air like the insect it resembled. And the clockmakers marveled at this great work the prince had made, and they meant to seize it and store it away in the vault by force. But the prince anticipated their greed, and turned the key and mounted the brilliant device, and flew off into the sky with the rising sun's bright light shimmering from every intricate gear and delicate spring. Even when archers were summoned to stop the prince's escape, they could not hit the magnificent device, for the light was so brilliant and distracting, coruscating and flashing and glimmering as from the faces of a many-sided diamond, that they could not see properly, and their every arrow went astray. And the prince set the lodestone into the butterfly's head, and so light was the craft that the gentle tending of the lodestone 
was enough to set the butterfly in pursuit of the great walking castle at an incredible speed. After ten years spent in the city of the rising sun, it was hardly an hour before the prince had overtaken the castle's outer wall and landed the clockwork butterfly in its courtyard. The prince would have rushed up the stairs to find the princess, but he did not have to. She had seen the rainbows of sunlight reflecting from the splendid butterfly from many leagues out, like a jeweled scarab of tremendous size and flight, and had come herself to see. And now, with no danger of sleep, the prince was finally able to see the princess, and he fell in love with her all over again, for she was just as he had remembered her and imagined her. She had a clear, beautiful face, so white and pale it seemed to shine with moonlight even in the bright day, and her dark hair was so silky and smooth it seemed rather to be a cloak of inestimable worth about her shoulders, and her eyes were golden and sparkled with a thousand colors he could never have imagined before today. All the colors of his splendid butterfly danced prismatically across her spotless white dress and pure pale skin, such that it seemed to him that the light of the butterfly had been purposed only to illuminate her in this way, and that her beauty, itself complete, was at its highest expression in such a brilliant display. But to her, he was a man, careworn, gruff, with rough hands and hair grayed beyond what his years would warrant, sweaty with the heat and scarred many times by knife work and brambles and hammer blows. His princely demeanor had flown from him with his many nights spent sleeping on rough soil, and there was a faint, distinct smell about him of filth and decay that she did not like. Indeed, the clockwork butterfly entranced her with its shimmering brilliance, she who had seen many wonders from the high windows of her keep, but she did not recognize him, nor did she want to, for he was rough and no longer lovely. When he told her they had met ten years ago, she did not believe him, for the boy she remembered was a raw youth, tall as a sailor, with salt in his hair and strong shining arms and a high, proud back, but this man was thin and squinted and hunched from the time he'd spent examining tiny things under glass or working in cramped quarters over a desk too short for him. But then he showed her the lodestone, and she recognized it, and saw in him the same fierce determination that had flickered there so many years ago when he had stood half-mad in her doorway. She was confused and afraid, and when he told her he wanted to take her away, she did not want to go. Rather, she said, she would have him properly woo her, as befits a rich, established man seeking the hand of a beautiful princess, and, undaunted, he agreed. Over the following months he came and went many times to and from the roaming fortress, navigating always by the lodestone on the butterfly's brow. He brought her sparkling gems, but she had many more beautiful. He brought her silken dresses, but she had many softer and more flattering but he also brought her flowers like those she had only ever glimpsed from afar, and chocolates and delicious cakes she had only ever smelled at a distance, and they spoke long hours into the night as she'd only ever done alone. For all the wonders she'd seen from her walking castle, she'd never known someone utterly unlike herself, who thought in new ways and said things she couldn't expect. Nor had she ever been able to touch and taste and handle the things she'd seen from her high towers. Gradually, she yearned for what her castle could not provide, and she grew curious and greedy for the world he knew and tried, in small handfuls, to bring her. 
She also loved the clockwork butterfly, for it could easily come and go beyond the walls of her castle according to his desire. The castle moved, it was true, but it walked according to its own wants, obeying no will but its own, inscrutable and capricious. She longed to go wherever she would, to visit the things she had seen according to her own wishes, to dunk her head beneath glistening waterfalls and sink her fingers into hot sand dunes, to let her head be tossed by a woodland breeze and to squelch her own feet into new spring mud. The first time the prince offered to take her up in the butterfly, she refused, but with regrets. The second time she thought long and hard before she rejected the offer, but the desire burned within her. The third time she accepted without hesitation. Once in the air she felt a new freedom she'd never felt before. The wind thrust her hair back behind her like a snapping cape, hard enough to hurt, but she liked it, even that it hurt. They soared high into the sky, dived and climbed and shunted side to side so hard her breath caught in her throat, but the excitement of it was unlike anything she'd ever known before. She loved the very danger of it, the empty space falling away to either side without walls or terraces or banisters. Then he offered to let her fly the delicate craft, and she yelped for joy, uncontrollably so eager was she at the prospect of choosing her own way through the sky. In her hands they flew higher and faster, changing direction in mid-air and effortlessly spinning tight circles in the brilliant sunlight. She flew higher and higher, until the ground was mere green splotches divided by streams and crumbling walls and tiny towns of miniature buildings, and still she climbed higher, up into the clouds thick and wet. Her hair was sopping, but her eyes were bright. They spiraled together, up and around the wondrous sky, with nothing to stop them in the empty air but the occasional flock of surprised birds. For hours she manipulated the wondrous machine, as he stopped to turn the key from time to time until the purple rays of the sunset painted new hues over the lacework mechanisms, and she asked to go home. He took the levers and knobs in hand, but the lodestone did not guide them. The butterfly spun when left unchecked, in lazy circles gradually upward. The prince scratched his head, unsure of the problem. Then she realized. Slowly she withdrew her hand from the bosom of her own dress, her half of the lodestone was hanging around her neck as it always had, from habit. The prince offered to set her lodestone in the mechanism as well, and it even seemed to work for a time, but the craft stopped, hovering over an empty patch of sea near a sandy, featureless beach at the edge of the earth. The castle was nowhere to be found. It had wandered off, and they had no way of finding it. The decision to leave had been made for her. And though the prince could not say for sure, it seemed to him that, from that very moment, the luster in the princess's eyes had diminished somewhat, never to return again.